Welcome to the Painted Target Podcast. Here today, we haven't had him on the podcast with Dennis Mangan, and he runs a website called RogueHealthAndFitness.com. He's also an author. He's he's written a bunch of books, but I'm going to read off a few here. The first book I ever read of his was Dumping Iron, and that was a that was extremely interesting. So. He's got Dumping Iron, Muscle Up, he has One Hour Fitness, and the world's simplest fat loss plan that I know those are some newer ones, and then Stop the Clock. And another thing that I took of Dennis's was the Anti-Aging Blueprint, which, what is the uh, app that you have that through, Dennis? What's it, is it Teachable? That That's right, yeah. Okay, cool. So you guys can find that on his all this stuff on his website, Rogue Health and Fitness, and he's also on Twitter, which is where I met him in the first place. It's at uh, Mangan150 on Twitter, even though most of you guys, I'm sure you follow him. So, you know, Dennis is 64 years old. He's a microbiologist. He looks like he's 35. So you'll have to go. <laughs> you'll have to go on there and look at his pictures. But he's practicing what he preaches. So I appreciate, uh, appreciate you coming on, man. Uh, well, thanks, Jason. Uh, thanks for inviting me. So what kind of started this, um, at least interaction lately, as far as doing a podcast, and I've been wanting to do it for a while, is he has its six emails, I'm pretty sure, that he's just put out. He had his newsletters on his uh, website and his Twitter account, and it's great information, so you guys need to check it out. And the titles of the emails are Diet and Mental Health, and, you know, this is... I wouldn't say necessarily, you know, this is something that most of us have realized in the health realm that your metabolic state, your diet is a big reason on why you feel the way you feel. So, and actually to tie into this, I think it's uh, what is it? Dr. Patrick with foundmyfitness.com. She just put out a 13 page paper about the same thing that Dennis is writing about. And there's a lot of connections to this stuff. And I talk about the mind a lot, talk about, I guess, essentially mental health. So I wanted to bring on an expert to discuss this. So, Dennis, just give us a little rundown of these emails and kind of what, you know, made you want to write them and what the thesis of these emails are. And then we'll get into a couple more specifics. Okay. Uh, well, um, I've, I've learned a, a lot about uh, the relationship between diet and mental health. And uh, these things are, there's, there's, a, there's tons of scientific papers about them. And I kind of felt that most people don't know about this stuff. And it's important. So there's this there's this idea sort of floating around that um, depression uh, just sort of strikes and its uh, provenance is unknown. Um, and you take uh, antidepressant drugs to deal with it. It has maybe has to do with neurotransmitters like serotonin and so on. And um, 
the thing is that just really seems to be largely wrong. All, all that, all those ideas that I just mentioned. Um, depression is, uh, is associated with inflammatory processes. So the, the uh, inflammation is the body's defense system, uh, against pathogens basically, and, and other things. Um, and the, the inflammatory system goes awry in depression. So, uh, there, there's a brilliant, um, biological psychiatrist by the name of Dr. Michael Mize, M-A-E-S. He's a, he's a Dutchman, um, now I think in Australia. Um, and he's been writing about this for a couple of decades now. This is where I, you know, first came across this idea. And he's shown, he, he was the first to show that in people with major depressive disorder, that they have this upregulated inflammatory system going. These inflammatory cytokines uh, are increased in people with depression. So he, he's written a bunch of papers about this and he continues to uh, be very productive in this area. Um, so other people have done lots of work uh, as well. And it's pretty apparent that diet is, is important in, in depression yeah. because this uh, inflammation, diet, uh, uh, diet is related to inflammation, right? So specifically what kind of diet the the diet that we eat now, which is often called the SAD for the standard American diet, makes sense, yeah, right, or the Western diet, however, but they, those terms both convey the same thing, largely composed of ultra processed foods. They're high in uh, refined grains, sugar, and seed oils. Seed oils, aka vegetable oils, um, and these can promote infl inflammation. So in somebody, you know, presumably who, who has maybe some sort of genetic susceptibility, um, who is exposed to these dietary factors, they, they could end up uh, depressed. Yeah, it's like a so, double whammy, basically. Right, right. So, um, and, you know, and I, and I just feel that this this is not very much appreciated by by the public that that, that people don't know this. And it's certainly, as I, I said, it's you know, it's not it's not the paradigm that the public paradigm that people use to talk about depression. Instead, yeah. they talk about neurotransmitters and antidepressants and so on. Uh, and so now and there's enough before I get into specifics about the diet, there's another side to this. Um, because that I, that I want to mention, and and that is that, um, uh, you know what what is known in the jargon as psychosocial stress or psychosocial trauma can also lead to inf these uh, increase of an inflammatory processes. So these things are are like you know a lot of what you talk about in your emails. Um, that people have have gone through various problems and they're trying to deal with them psychologically. Yeah. So 
if, if somebody has some kind of some kind of psychological trauma or ongoing psychological stress, these also can upregulate upregulate these inflammatory cytokines and other other inf inflammatory factors. So you have a little bit of uh, you know chicken and egg kind of deal here, like which, you know which comes first. Um, you know, for example, if somebody who is in perfect health and eating a good diet had one of these psychological traumas happen, would it be easier to deal with than somebody who was in worse health? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that, but um, it's something to consider. Yeah. And excuse me, I was thinking of that when you were talking and I put it in some of the notes is it becomes somewhat of a chicken before the egg or vice versa. And it sounds like that, which I, which I think you just said is you start having these psychological things or you have traumas. You know, I know many people that do, you know, this is a common thing for society right now. And it's, it has to spark those centers, those inflammatory markers, which in turn make everything worse. So you have this, you know, rolling down the hill thing where I don't even know if it really matters what comes first because they're both what potentiating each other and what they're doing. Right. So that's why you see things like what um, curcumin and fish oil and high doses that are helping people with stress or with hard times. I mean, there's BDNF and all these things, but you're right that seems to be and i'm not sure if this is the right word that there's more of a focus on maybe the neuropharmacology aspect of this in the sense of what can these drugs do to put a band-aid on it combined with well not combined but on the other side with what you're talking about where there are heavy um let's call them truths that if you are a person like you said that went through something hard or maybe, you know, this is a whole other topic, maybe genetically have an issue with something like depression and then you feed it with the American diet. Right. I mean, you're there. It almost hits a point, And I've thought this in reading your work where it's safe to say that somebody that's in a depression, that's eating something like, this diet and that's what we'll talk about next is what specifically that diet is there's almost no way that they're going to get out of that loop of depression i don't see how it's physiologically possible right um you know most it it seems to me that in in most cases if if somebody somebody does get over it without without changing their, you know, lifestyle factors such as diet and exercise and so on, then, you know, it's a matter of time, I suppose, um, you know, that, that, uh, they, they get over this, they get over this psychological stress or trauma. Um, the question is, would it be a whole lot easier for them yeah. to get over mm -hmm. it if they were healthier? I believe the answer to that is yes. Um, you know, so it, it it is very important. I mean, to, it, depression is a is a serious matter. You know, mental health in in, in general is is a very serious matter. So, um, yeah, I think you know, 
you know, I, I, I tweeted something a while back and, and got uh, a few sort of outraged responses, which is, you know, I was kind of expecting, I mean, it's, it's pretty typical because, um, well, a lot of people don't like to hear it. And I, and I tweeted that, you know, how many, how many people that eat right are of normal weight, get exercise, get sunshine, um, and sleep well are depressed. And my answer, my guess is that few are. So, um, you, like I said, I got some outrage responses, but the thing is all of those factors that I just mentioned, there's, there's solid scientific evidence that they do impinge upon depression and getting over depression. Um, you know, it's just, it's just, you know, to me, it's, it's just obvious that, um, you know, you know, like I mentioned in, in my email, I think the, the one that just went out today, um, that the brain, the brain is, is the seat of the mind and the brain is an organ like the heart or the liver. And you put that in a body and you feed it, um, you know, we're mainly talking about diet, but there's these other factors too, like exercise and sunshine and good sleep and so on and diet. Um, you know, that's obviously going to affect the brain and, and in turn the mind. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's somewhat what I try to say in a lot of my work is there is, I'm essentially talking about the foundation of if you have things. So the other version of what I'm saying, which it actually kind of ties into what you're saying is there is a such thing as having a healthy foundation to where you're not taking something to cover up the problems of the mind. You're hitting it at a foundational level because like you said in that tweet, it's safe to say because there's two big factors in that that people leave out and it's sunlight and sleep. There's very few people coming from someone that has dealt with this for a lot of years and it was kind of my final hurdle is sleep. You know, there's very few people getting good sleep. So you put those two things in there and just those alone, you know, so people hear what you're saying about diet and healthy and they'll react because they're insecure and they don't think it's fair. And that's how we live in 2019 as far as reactive. But the other two factors are something that almost no one gets, you know, the vitamin D and the sun through, I guess it would be considered what photosynthesis instead of just a pill and then sleeping correctly. So that's what I'm talking about on another level is there is a such thing that if you have certain things correct, that you will be in a space where your mind isn't chattering away and everything's going crazy. And that is like you're saying, physiological. I'm sure right. if someone's got a diet that's high in refined carbohydrates and sugar, I'm sure that mental activity is going to be higher. So, you know, it's like we're saying the same thing just in different ways. So let's let's segue into this. What exactly are the parts of this standard American diet that are so bad? Right. So um, when I when I first started writing this 
series in, in my newsletter, one of the things I focused on was omega-3 fatty acids. So those are the kind of fatty acids that are found abundantly in fish and fish oil. The thing is, is that they, they are, are opposed in action to omega-6 fatty acids, and those are the kind that are found abundantly in vegetable oils. Which I, you know, which I call seed oils because that's a better term. They're made from seeds from an industrial process. Now, these these seed oils were not a major part of anyone's diet until quite recently, historically speaking, um, maybe 120 years, perhaps a little longer, uh, because it took until the late 19th century for them to invent the, uh, you know, the machinery that could could get a significant amount of oil out of out of these seeds. Um, it actually uh, started with getting oil out of cotton seeds because cotton seeds are a waste product and they wanted to get something out of them. And, you know, nobody ever ate cottonseed oil, but they got the cottonseed oil and they proceeded to make Crisco with it. Um, and then it became part of part of our diet. And I mean, it, and so anyway, that is that is one of the things. So when the, these omega-6 and omega-3 fatty acids are, are normal normal part of our diet, even if we're eating well, we do get some omega-6. And if we're eating well, we do get some omega-3 always. But we, now we just have this abundance of omega-6 fatty acids. Um, and, and just as an aside, that's not the only thing wrong with these seed oils, but that, that's what's relevant right here. Um, so these two fatty acids basically compete with each other for a place in cell membranes. Um, and the omega-6 fatty acids are generally used to make inflammatory molecules. And the omega-3 fatty acids are used to make anti-inflammatory molecules. So when, when someone is... Uh, eating the SAD, the standard American diet, or the modern Western diet, um, they get a lot of omega-6 fatty acids and they tend, so they tend to have this imbalance of inflammatory compounds, prostaglandins, cytokines, and so on. Uh, so so their, whole, their whole system, their body is tipped over in, into an inflammatory mode. So there's been a lot of uh, uh, scientific work looking at omega-3 fatty acids, the kind in fish oil, in the treatment of things like depression and bipolar disorder. Uh, and uh, in some of these cases, they've had decent results. There certainly needs to be a lot more work, especially in regard to dose and things like that duration of treatment and so on. But essentially what they're doing by giving omega-3 fatty acids is they're, they're combating the ingestion of seed oils, the high ingestion of seed oils that everyone has, almost everyone has. So, um, considering that, that the relationship between inflammation and depression, um, you, and then you have people, uh, their diets include all these seed oils, high omega-6 levels with their bodies tipped over 
into this pro-inflammatory state. So it's also tipped over into a pro mental illness state, if you want to put it that way. Um, so that, that is one of the specific things about the modern American diet that is, that is leads to inflammation and could lead to depression. Now there are other things too. You maybe you saw my email about, um, there was a, a case report of, uh, a woman who is now elderly, who was schizophrenic her entire life. And um, she was on, you know, massive amount of drugs to, to fight the schizophrenia. She had uh, a state appointed guardian. Um, you know, she, she went through her life hallucinating, hearing voices, at times suicidal, stuff like that bad, really bad things. Um, and so at some point in her life, uh, I think about 15 years before this, this, this journal article was just very recent, just came out a couple months ago, um, about 15 years ago, something like that. She was, she was obese. And so she decided to try a ketogenic diet. So she did. And within a few weeks, she noticed that the hallucinations were going away. And then she took it upon herself to stop, I guess, gradually the drugs that she was taking. And eventually she stopped all of them and she had a, a remission from her schizophrenia. She uh, is no longer has any, you know, any of the symptoms of schizophrenia. She no longer has a state appointed guardian. She lives on her own independently and um, is, according to this uh, journal article, says, uh, says she's happy to be alive. So she had, a, she had a complete remission from schizophrenia with the ketogenic diet. Uh, there was another case also in, in this same article. So, you know, there's, there's something else in susceptible people, perhaps, uh, you know, a high load of refined carbohydrates and or sugar could could be you know doing something to to cause this schizophrenia so there's another element of the the sad the standard american diet that you know lead you know could lead to inflammation mental illness um and in these cases anyway so this is not a systematic study this this case i'm talking about these are just the case reports of two two people um it, this hasn't been studied in any systematic way with with schizophrenics. Um, so, um, th you know, this is this is an, another element there that um, you know how, in susceptible people that the, the standard American diet could be could be doing. Um, Um, about wheat and um, there another case of the you know keto going ketogenic um, resulting in remission of depression. So you know this this is all around this the standard American diet is um, 
you know, it does, it doesn't seem to be very good for mental health. One, one of the things in that seems to be quite common in, um, in this area of diet and mental health is that, uh, is insulin resistance. So as you know, from, from reading what I write, you know, I consider insulin resistance and the result in high insulin as being basically the cause of all causes of chronic disease. It just manifests differently in different people. So that, you know, high, high, uh, insulin resistance has been found in schizophrenics. Um, and you know, people, people with metabolic syndrome, which is pre-diabetes, you know, are, you know, could, you know, more likely to be, to have mental health issues and so on. So, um, those those are some of the specific issues having to do with the with the standard american diet and and mental health okay so yeah it seems like i mean this is what you said and it seems that inflammation which this diet can cause or is causing and is really the main culprit because even like with insulin i was telling you i was reading that one book um fat for fuel by dr mccola and that's what he was saying too exactly what you were just saying about the insulin levels in certain you know patients that have mental health issues and you look at something like the fish oil and once again it's kind of the you know chicken before the egg or vice versa but you've got someone that has high inflammation and then you're giving them something in high doses they you know combats that inflammation so you have an inflamed state from a diet. You have an inflamed state from, you know, I don't have any science to back this, but I'm just going to, you know, it could be a possibility of an overactive mental state. You put it together, you have a ton of inflammation, all these cytokines, all these things. And then you're taking things like fish oil or curcumin or high fats, like in the ketogenic diet, low carbohydrates. And now things are coming together a little bit because the other angle too, and a lot of people will know this, Dennis, from listening to your stuff and just being in health is a lot of, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of the positives of something like a low carbohydrate diet or the ketogenic diet is the fact that in itself, it's very anti-inflammatory because of the fats, correct? Right. Yes. Uh, Yes. Not sure it's exactly because of the fats, but yes, it is. Ketogenic diet is definitely an anti-inflammatory diet. Because it seems that I know like uh, a lot of the guys that have spearheaded the um, the ketogenic diet, that's what a lot of this comes down to. Because even when they're using it for disease and things like that, you know, we hear it for certain diseases where these diets are essentially starving the disease because you have, and like I said, you correct me if I'm wrong, but in diseases you have damaged mitochondria and it's damaged in the sense of usually like, you know, inflammation, oxidation, all these things, but, um, or oxidative stress, but they're also modified in a bad way to where a lot of these damaged mitochondria can only use 
um, you know, glucose or sugars for fuel, unlike our other cells that could use fat for fuel. So that's almost the idea is you're starving, you know, the body, so to speak, in the bad things. I mean, is that some way to explain it a little bit? Um, Yes. Well, certainly mitochondrial function is very important and it's, you know, uh, mitochondrial, the mitochondria are, are out of whack in many states of ill health, uh, probably all of them really. And mitochondria also, uh, increased in dysfunction with aging. So yes, it's, you know, the mitochondria are huge. You got to give them, you know, I, I mean, they play a huge role. So, you know, you got to give them the right fuel. Uh, um, another thing I, I, I'll bring up is that in cases of inflammation and how it's related to diet and and mental health, um, one, one big avenue is the gut. So, uh, and, and so our diet... Uh, affects the gut, which is, you know, no surprise because what we eat goes right into our gut and it's, it's a very direct effect. And what, uh, what the, what the gut is supposed to do in, in a healthy condition is keep the, keep the contents of the gut inside the gut and outside the body. So, you know, you can consider that the contents of the gut are really outside the body. It's supposed to be very selective in what it lets in, right? Let in nutrients and keep out the bad stuff. So of course the gut is loaded with bacteria and it's loaded with food in the process of digesting. So if the, if the gut isn't selective enough in keeping this stuff out, it enter, it enters the rest of the body. It enters the circulation. One of, one of the really bad things that does enter, um, are, are molecules called lipopolysaccharides. And these are the, uh, these, these are part of the cell walls of gram negative bacteria in which our gut is abundant. You know, normally in, in good health or bad, we have yeah. lots of lots of these kind of bacteria, but they're supposed to stay where they are. And in cases of leaky gut, they don't. They enter the body and they the, these molecules are um, highly inflammatory. So you can imagine the the body wants to defend itself against bacteria. Yeah. Um, because, you know, a, a systemic infection can be fatal. So when, when the body senses the, this lipopolysaccharide from these bacteria entering the body there, it just, it goes, it cranks up the inflammation. Right. So, um, and then this leads to an inflammatory cascade with the cytokines mobilization of, uh, white blood cells and so on and uh, you know this need not be something like uh, acutely obvious it can be going on at a low level and um, so somebody might really not sense what's wrong there you know they might have you know mental health problems depression anxiety and not really you know make any kind of connection so one of the things that a good diet does is it 
helps to solve this problem of, of the leaky gut and to keep keep the bad stuff where it belongs and not circulating in the body. Yeah, and it's it's like you said with the lady that had those issues, you know, mental health issues, schizophrenia and stuff is it would probably be safe to say that she didn't necessarily know what was going on and it sounds like that it was an inflammatory issue. So it could be written off as you're born with these genes or whatever and you're screwed, so let's put them on 7,000 pills and try to damper it a little bit. And then all of a sudden you change one thing in diet and now you learn that it's an inflammation issue. So it's like you said with the with the gut, the microbiome, which made me think of metformin because you have all the, it's not necessarily new, but you have all this information coming out saying that that's one of its biggest mechanisms is that it's, you know, cleansing right. the gut. And I guess you could say berberine probably, and I know you've written about others that do that. Um, but it's an interesting thing. And it, it brings me to, I put this in our notes cause it was from that, uh, Dr. Rhonda Patrick, she wrote that, just came out with that paper essentially on depression. And she wrote, adherence to a Western diet, which is high in processed foods, refined sugar, and saturated fats, promotes a misfit population of microbes that chronically activates the body's immune system. The cycle of stress, poor dietary choices, and immune responses set the stage for self-sustaining systematic inflammation and low mood. So it's exactly what you're saying in your work. And another thing we should point out is a lot of this is, you know, is a problem in combination. So it's not that something like saturated fat is necessarily bad, but when these things are in combination with highly processed, refined foods, then you can start to see some issues. Right. Right. Um, that, yes, that is true. Um, the, the pe- people probably don't realize the, or maybe they do, but anyway, the extent to which, um, these ultra processed foods are eaten in the United States. Yeah. Um, there, there have been, there's been work that, you know, that shows that 60 to 70% of the calories of the average person is ultra processed food. Um, so for those that don't know, you know, what that is, this is, this is factory food. This is stuff that's in the, you know, mainly composed of, of uh, refined grain, sugar, and or seed oils. It's packaged food. Um, and, and people are eating massive amounts of it. So, uh, and obviously, you know, since I eat basically zero, obviously somebody else out there is eating a lot more to bring up the average. Um, and, and so, you know, this, this, this is, it's just not, um, we are not adapted to eating this way. It is not a natural way to eat, right? We are, we are adapted to eating whole foods and certainly uh, if you want to go back further, you know, even before the advent of agriculture, we're adapted to eating lots of meat. Um, we're, we're not adapted to eating ultra processed foods. You know, I mentioned earlier that um, 
vegetable oil, seed oils really came into, into use about 120 or so years ago. And, you know, the same with a lot of this stuff. So white flour was began to be milled in large quantities only in the 19th century. And uh, sugar as well, sugar, sugar has been around a bit, you know, a bit longer than that, but it became cheap enough that everybody started consuming it and the numbers went way, way up. So this flood of ultra processed food and the refined grain, sugar and seed oils, it's all new, historically speaking. It, it's just all very new. And then, then we had another, um, another hit, I guess you could say, when uh, you, you went in the 1970s, we had the dietary guidelines issued and they told people that, you know, saturated fat was going to kill them, uh, it was going to clog their arteries. And so people stopped eating meat and they started eating even more refined carbs and sugar. Sugar was looked on at the time, in fact, until very recently as something quite benign. Um, and, and, um, it, you know, I was just reading the other day about how in the 1980s, the American Heart Association was telling people if you wanted a snack, eat candy because it was low in fat. So th this has been the attitude. Um, so it's not just it's it's not just the ultra processed foods, but it, it a decline since then, since the 70s and early 80s in eating what human beings are meant to eat and we're just not to met, meant to eat these kind of foods yeah it's a good point about the saturated fat and in that book i was talking about they were touching on that where that all came from i can't remember the guy's name i know you know his name that that started that whole thing years ago yeah um, ansel keys yep that was it and the interesting thing is, I mean, I, I talked to you about this privately before and people can see it in my tweets is I, I'm, I don't naturally eat a lot of carbs. I feel that I just don't need them as much for fuel, but on some days, like with harder training, I'll add them in or move them out. So I'm not really on one side or the other. I stay flexible. I have one day a week where I eat probably about 200 grams and then I go five or six days with essentially less than 50 net. So I'm not really on any side. I just kind of go with what fuels my body. But, you know, you read this stuff and I realize you, you obviously know this, that it's political, the saturated <laughs> fat thing. It's kind of cultish almost, but I, I was actually at one point trying to find the holes and I was looking at that, you know, this whole, theory of it clogging your arteries and all these things and, and the cholesterol and even like with eggs and it's just not accurate i mean even right. if you even if you were to sit here and be somewhat um i don't know you know somewhat on what's either side i can't find any we don't have to get into how we came up with it but I don't see how something like saturated fat is clogging the arteries. It seems like that the insulin spike and the state that this uh, American diet puts us in is what hardens the arteries. It's not the saturated fat. 
I, I completely agree with you. It's obviously yeah. insulin related. Um, pe- people to give a, give a simple illustration, uh, diabetics have about three times the risk of a heart attack as oh, wow. non-diabetics. Right. And so, and of course, among the non-diabetics, you've got people with pre-diabetes and, you know, generally eating the American diet and in bad shape, like almost everybody is. So if you, if you actually separate it out, the truly metabolically healthy people from the people who are not metabolically healthy, including the people who have diabetes, I'm sure you'd find vastly increased rates of heart disease among the, you know, not just the diabetics, yeah. but, you know, everyone else. Right. So um, the and the idea that, well, I guess the popular idea, and this probably isn't really held seriously by anybody who's interested, you know, who, who knows about this topic. Um, but, you know, the popular idea is that the saturated fat just sort of silts up your arteries like like if you poured fat down the kitchen drain. Yeah, and that yeah. that is just like totally the wrong analogy. It just just does not happen that way at all. Um, so yeah, what looks like it's going on? What's going on is that there is inflammatory processes going on, insulin resistance. Uh, insulin is a growth hormone and promotes the growth of everything, right, including arterial walls, um, and promotes inflammation. So. There's obviously an inflammatory process going on. People, people, um, it's not just the diabetics, but, you know, they found that people who have heart disease are just way more likely to be glucose intolerant than others. Yeah. So, yeah, that, you know, to my mind, that's exactly what's going on. Uh, It's, I I shouldn't even say to my mind, it's obvious to me. Um, and it's not it's not about cholesterol or LDL cholesterol or saturated fat. It's about insulin resistance. This is why, for example, obesity uh, is related to heart disease um, and diabetes, as, as I mentioned, um, that, you know, that's what it's all about. That's why exercise protects against yeah, heart disease yeah. is because it makes you insulin sensitive. Um, so. You know, and that, you know, that leads to other things like what what is the dietary cause of heart disease? And a much better case could be made that it's refined carbohydrates because they raise insulin and promote all this inflammation that, uh, that you know, that's going on that leads to heart disease. Um, you know, carbohydrates cause high triglycerides, which is known to be related to heart disease. They cause a low HDL cholesterol. That's the, that's the so-called good cholesterol. Also low, low HDL is known to be related to, to heart disease. Saturated fat doesn't do those things. Um, so yeah, that's, yeah, that, that's how I see it. And it's what people need to understand too is, it's easy to listen to us talk or, you know, there's obviously like a keto craze right now still going on and think that we're necessarily bashing carbohydrates in the sense of a macronutrient. And it's, it's, you have to realize the word is refined and it's the way that they're being consumed now because they're, 
if you know, I'm trying to think of back, like you know, where Rome in the plains or something way back when these people would eat some form of carbohydrates. I'm guessing it was more fibrous, but the idea is not necessarily carbohydrates with quotes. It's how they are now. Because if you went out to the store and said, I need some carbs for a workout, let's say you're trying to fuel some crazy high intensity workout where you're not so much in a normal aerobic, you know, whatever fat burning state, you're going to, it's going to be hard to find any that are a better kind, you know, like you could have a little sweet potato or something, but the key words here, just for people listening is how it kind of combines into this diet, you know, because it's the way they're made now, the car, I would say, I mean, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, that the way the carbohydrates are designed now are more or less designed like a sugar, you know, as sugar, then they're designed as some carbohydrate that's trying to fuel something, you know, and that's where the problem comes in. So, right. So, yeah, the, the, the two forms of carbohydrate that seem to be pretty much, you know, guilty of everything we're talking about are refined white flour and sugar. Yeah, those are the main culprits. Now, if somebody is obese and they, you know, needed to cut back on carbohydrate, there are other carbs that they need to consider, uh, like starchy vegetables such as potatoes. But generally speaking, right, it's 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 those it's refined white flour and sugar that are, you know, doing all the damage in 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 the modern American diet. Um, Yeah, so I mean in in the in the when when human beings evolved in the time period that human beings evolved um we it was it's unlikely that we're eating a lot of uh, carbohydrates and certainly there were plenty of times where people when people like during ice ages and in the north that people were eating next to zero carbohydrates um but when they did eat carbohydrates it was it was sources like um, you know, fruits and vegetables and some tubers. So, yeah. right. It's the, it's the, it's, it's not the what we're eating now. <laughs> no, it's not. There's it's no not way. what we're eating now for sure. There, there is, um, you know, I, I wrote about something recently, a uh, case of where they, they found that these uh, amateur athletes, serious amateur athletes who are training six hours or more a week at running or cycling, had high glucose levels and they were, yeah. So they were all eating a high carbohydrate diet. And, uh, some of the people I, I follow on Twitter, notably, uh, Dr. Timothy Noakes, um, have, have written a lot about this. Uh, Dr. Noakes himself, uh, he's, he's the author of a book called the lore of running. He's famous for this. He's a sports physiologist. So he's, and he's He's been a runner all his life, a distance runner, and still is, I believe, um, at the, in his late 60s. And he he became diabetic, wow. um, yeah. right, by, you know, following this high-carbohydrate diet. So people so, are basically, like, pre-diabetic, even though they're an elite athlete, because 65-plus percent of their diet is all carbohydrates. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, and even in the training that I did to become a personal trainer, you know, they they were they're very good. You know, they were 
looking at both angles, but I can remember them talking about the standard American diet where they were saying something about, you know, it's 65% or more that they're saying you should have carbs and very little fat and then be careful with the protein because you know of every scare that they say about that, which seems to be all wrong. But even when you look at this, I was telling someone this the other day, because even when you look at this from a purely observational, no side, I don't even, don't even look at the science. When you look at it just from pure, like at being a health conscious person, at the level of activity that most people sit at nowadays, which is very little, you do not need a fuel, you know, fat and carbohydrates would be considered an energy, a fuel, whatever. You can argue, you know, protein is too, but you don't need that much of one fuel if you're barely moving. I mean, that's right. the simple reality of this. And I said that to someone, I'm like, you, who was more along the lines of the standard, this person was trained we'll say, um, you know, institutionally like that. And I just, you weren't going to win that conversation. But I said, my view is that people don't need as much as they're eating because they're not fueling any kind of anything. You know, that's the simple part of it. You don't need that high of, of that for what most people are doing. And as you just proved, even the ones with the huge output, or I'm guessing, I'm not sure if you put this in the email, but I'm guessing their protein was too low, their fats were probably non-existent, and then it was all carbohydrates. Well, yeah, I, I would guess that's the case. Uh, yeah. Back when I did distance running, it's been a while, but I spent a good 20, 20 years of my life doing fairly serious distance running. And I read all the running magazines oh, yeah. and I paid, you know, all this kind of stuff, and they were all... It was carbs, 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 eat carbs, eat spaghetti the night before a race. Oh, yeah. All this kind Carb of stuff. You know? yeah. Yeah, 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 right. And now what... It's the opposite. <laughs> right. What's what's happening now is you've got ultra-distance runners who are eating very low-carbohydrate. You've got ketogenic distance runners and so on. They're finding out that if you adapt, you, you just don't need all those carbs. Um, yeah, yep. You know, so as, as I'm sure, you know, carbohydrate, the, the, the higher intensity, the exercise, the more glycogen, which is a storage form of carbohydrate you burn. So yeah. for example, if you're doing intense weightlifting or sprinting, you're, you're burning a lot more of the, of the glycogen, um, as opposed to distance running where you're not. Yeah. It's all um, aerobic. Yeah. Usually. Right. Right. So this this whole carbs for distance runners seems pretty ill advised. Um, you know whether I've I've gotten into discussions slash arguments with people. This is this this topic. It, you know stirs the passions. Oh yeah. About bodybuilders and and you know how much or to what extent they need carbs or do they at all? Um, and you know some people say well. Um, you know, bodybuilders have always eaten carbs and that's how you get big, you know, it's how you build muscle. And, you know, I say, well, in response to that, I mean, I'm, I'm not denying it and I'm not saying that, that that's mistaken, but 
I am saying that everybody's always eating carbs. The distance runners ate carbs. The cyclists ate carbs. Everybody always is just carbs, carbs, carbs. And now they're finding out in many cases, you just don't need them. So, um, and you talk about it a lot just with, with, um, you know, with just me feeling full, you know, because I, I did, well, I mean, you could say now that I'm essentially doing that, I'm pretty much doing like a psych, you know, a cyclic ketogenic diet. But what I've noticed is I do seem to get better workouts with a higher set of carbs, but the definition of a higher set of carbs could be, you know, uh, an Ezekiel muffin that's 28 right. grams. You know, right. it, it, you don't like what we're talking about and what you would see in a lot of these books is, oh, the night before, which, you know, you've built up the stores, I understand. But the night before you have 300 grams of carbs in a pizza and then the morning of you have another hundred and it's like, no, I mean, I can't point to anything particular, but your body is still going to have some of that energy when you wake up in the morning. So it's like you say, if you went to a restaurant and you had a 10 ounce steak, you're not going to be hungry for a while. So a lot of it, when people do these low carbohydrate diets, and I was guilty of this too, you're just frankly not eating enough. You're not eating enough, let's say, of protein or, uh, you know, fats. So I notice that if I'm in the gym and I'm kind of lagging a bit, it's probably because of the amount of protein or the type of meal more than it is that I need 300 grams of carbs two hours before. Uh huh. I, and right. That's your I, diet too. I think that's what you, you know, in your, uh, your diet you just put out. Right. So yes, I, I advocate, you know, for, for fat loss, I advocate a, a low carbohydrate diet. Definitely. You know, with, with a few wrinkles in there. Um, but what, what I, I, I get questioned a lot, uh, you know, what what do I think about carbohydrates? And so my what I tell people is that if you're lean, you're healthy and you exercise regularly and you want to eat carbs, there's probably little harm in it. I mean, unless I'm not, again, like you were just talking about, I'm not advocating 50 percent of calories as carbs yeah, or anything yeah. like that. But I'm just saying, however, if you're not lean, if you're not in in great health and you don't exercise regularly and that category covers about 80 to 90 percent of Americans, then you'd really be well advised to cut Lower the carbs <laughs> quite a lot. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And um, I was just going to say about the, the workouts, you know, to address what what you mentioned. I, I can't say I've re- really ever noticed any difference in my workouts, whether, you know, I've had some carbs or whether I'm totally fasted or eating ketogenic. But then again, uh, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm not a, any, anywhere near an elite athlete or anything. I do work out regularly. Um, my, one of my theories about carbs and bodybuilding or reason why bodybuilders are so enamored of them is because because it's like like you mentioned about if you eat a steak then you're not hungry for a while but if you eat carbs you can really cram them in 
because they they don't uh, they have less satiety attached to them. So if you really need to put on the mass, um, you know, carbohydrates uh, can help. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Obviously, most people in this country don't need to put on the mass. Yeah, and, and people have to realize how these guys are doing it too because I know some extremely high-level, shredded, single-digit body fat people that eat a lot of carbs. And really, when I started really getting serious with this, because I've been logging, I use you know the, uh, the, um, the Fitness Pal app, and I, I won't be doing that so much anymore, but logging calories, and I was really trying to nail in what my body liked. And I started and I was eating about 220 grams of carbs a day. Now, mind you, I was eating a lot of fiber. They were considered the better carbs. I was not eating a lot of refined stuff. And I was losing fat. But the thing is, and you know, this is, <laughs> we'll have to do this on another podcast, the whole calories in, calories out and low carb. That's a, that's a whole beast in itself. But these guys that are bodybuilding, especially that are competing, they will eat a lot of carbs, some of them 300, 400, 500, whatever, but they're still doing it in a very surgical way. So, you know, these, for people listening, these guys aren't eating just garbage all day and trying to make it work. So they're using them very, as you said, for probably more of a mass type thing. Um, you know, so it's very specific. And I think the wording for a lot of people that start looking into this stuff, they think like, well, this is bad and this is bad. It's like, well, everything's bad in excess. And the problem is with this standard American diet is all the bad stuff is in excess. So, you know, that's right. That's what it's coming down to. But when I dropped, I was I probably was normally sitting at maybe I don't know, probably between like 11 and 12% body fat. And I switched over to like a, it, it was essentially a ketogenic diet. Um, carbohydrates were real low. And in about two and a half months or something like that, I was down into the single digits. So there's no doubt that it works. And overall, at least for me personally, I just, I was telling people, I just felt better on a higher fat diet, but in some ways I would notice small performance issues. But then on the other hand, you know, it's like you said, it depends on your workout. But anyway, so it's extremely interesting with this kind of low car, you know, this low carb topic and energy and all this and even protein, which isn't really considered you know like it would be carbs or fat but it's been demonized because of the whole kidney thing and then just the political thing because of vegetables and all that stuff but that's also been just like the saturated fat what happened with that that's been debunked the kid the kidney thing right Right. so it's anyway yeah it's go ahead on that one the we'll touch on protein real (laughs) quick and then we'll Right. Oh, on protein. Yeah. So uh, protein has been well, there's been this uh, there's been this idea, like you say, that you shouldn't eat too much protein. Right. That like when you're getting up towards, say, 20 percent of calories is protein, you're starting to, you know, hit the upper limit or something. Wow. And um, 
then there was always this idea that, um, yes, that too much protein harmed your kidneys. And that's been shown to be false. If you have normal kidney function, protein's not going to harm you in any way. Um, so one thing about, about the protein, and of course, then, like you say, this, this gets political because oh, yeah. uh, meat contains a high amount of protein. And um, protein is associated with, you know, bodybuilders and so on. Um, so in any case, increasing, increasing the protein in the diet um, seems to have no ill effects whatsoever. Uh, there, there, was, uh, there was an interesting study published just fairly recently where um, recreational bodybuilders, they, they took them and they had them on a high protein diet. Um, it was something like four, you know, three and a half to four grams of protein per kilogram of body weight daily. So that's, that's ultra high, right? Yeah, so yeah. it's, it's considered, it's considered that 1.8 grams around there per kilogram of body weight is the maximum you can use to, to build muscle. And so they these, were like these, doubling it or yeah. like double. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So they did this for a year and these guys had to take a lot of whey protein and so on to get up to that level. Because if you're eating a whole food diet, it's like, it's impossible. You're yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, unless you were eating nothing but chicken breast and tuna, I suppose. Yeah. Every hour. Yeah. Right. And anyway, they, they had absolutely, you know, they did all the labs on them and checked them out and everything. And they, you know, they were just totally fine. Wow. Um, and there's a, so many positives that come from that, like this inform, you know, the, the standard argument of you can't gain muscle and lose fat at the same time, but there's this information out there where if you're in a caloric deficit trying to lose fat, but you keep the protein very high, that all, you know, I would argue that maybe you're not gaining a ton of muscle, but you're retaining it while you're losing fat, you know? So right. The, and, and there, there have been, I, I, I wrote about one study just like that, um, on my website where they took, uh, these, they were police officers and they were overweight and they, they put them on resistance training uh, high protein. Uh, it was, it was not a low carbohydrate diet, but it was a calorie restricted diet that they put them on. And these guys definitely lost fat and gained muscle at the same time. No, wow. no, no problem. The, yeah. the thing is, of course, when we're talking about like, say somebody like yourself, who's getting down into single digit body fat percent, when you get down there, you know, it gets harder and harder to do oh, that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. to lose fat and gain muscle at the same time. But yeah. for, for most people who don't train at all, and if they're overweight, they could certainly do it. They could certainly lose fat and gain muscle at the same time with the right diet and resistance training. Yeah. And, you know, I can remember when I really started getting into this and was going to the trainer course and all this, I, I would just, that question would always sit in the back of my head about the losing fat and gain muscle. And I would always think, you know, just at a bare bones level that if it was possible, it would be with a higher protein intake. I mean, an amino acid that, right. you know, is obviously the building block of your muscles. If it stays at the right level, 
then your muscles won't be quote unquote wasting away because they're being, you know, filled with nutrients. And I would have people message me privately on the side and they'd say, Hey man, you know, just friends of mine that I've tried to coach a little bit and help. And they said, I know it's not really the common theme, but I think I'm losing fat and gaining muscle. And I would be kind of, I would be almost like, eh, you know, I, I don't, I don't really know, but then they would show me their macronutrients. I'm like, well, if you're eating 250 grams of carbs a day or um, protein a day, you've got good fats in there and all this, you know, maybe it is because fats in themselves right. are very protein sparing or what do they call it? Muscle sparing or whatever. So it's interesting. You know? Right. Right. The, the thing, the thing is that um, high protein alone in, in in the context of fat loss, high protein alone is not going to do a lot. Uh, so as yeah, you as as you know, <laughs> yeah. um, you know one of the problems in fat loss, and I discuss this in my book, is that um, people lose muscle when they lose fat. Uh, so this this is something that you know, everyone should avoid if they, if they go on a weight loss diet is to, you should lose fat only and not lose your muscle. Yeah. So high protein alone is, is, you know, only going to be a minimal help. You got to do resistance training yep. Uh, yep. to, you know, to preserve your muscle when, when you're doing fat loss. Yeah. And the thing is too, with people that aren't familiar is, if you're eating something like steak and, you know, um, pr high protein foods like that, they're also high in fat. So right. it's like these people that are doing the, I guess it's the carnivore diet. I haven't read much about it, but if they're eating a lot of meat, they're eating a lot of protein and fat. So mm -hmm. like you said, you can't just sit around the house and eat. And you'll hear people complaining about that where, well, I drop carbs, I drop fat. And I had 37 protein drinks a day and things like this. And it <laughs> right. takes more than that. And they've even had that, which is definitely against the mainstream. They've had those studies out there about if you're in a fasted state or do an extended day fast, you have to work out too to keep the muscle, which would, uh. I, you know, it totally makes sense. Just like an evolutionary way. If you don't use it, you lose it. But it's just interesting seeing all this information come out because, as you know, that's the core of your work. It's against everything we've ever been told. And it's <laughs> yeah. also showing us things that we're told could never happen that they actually can happen. Right. Um, I, th I think, uh, you know, one, one a big mistake that people who go on a ketogenic diet do in it, ketogenic in the context of weight loss is uh you know they they eat things like um they think that anything you know high fat and low carb is is, is good. okay is not off limits right and i mean what you know what do you think happens when you eat a, like a package of smoked almonds it's it's like you know you can't eat just one you yeah, eat the whole yeah. thing or you open a jar of high calorie a peanut, you know, planters, peanuts or something. And before you know it, you've eaten a thousand calories. Oh yeah. Um, yep. so, you know, people have to be aware of that. Uh, I think that, you know, the carnivore diet 
is helpful in that way because you know people people stay away from that that kind of stuff like like nuts yeah and you know my crack is almonds i buy those ones from costco that are actually don't have seed oils in them and they're just salted and i i tweeted that one time i'm like if you you know they say a quarter cup is a serving which is smaller than the palm of your hand and it's probably off a little bit anyway so you're thinking probably what 20 almonds at that size or maybe less is almost 200 calories you know uh-huh. people don't put that into consideration um but anyway well this was a good podcast we covered a ton of co- topics and we'll make sure to do another one um on this so i appreciate you coming on man and the uh, information Well, thanks a lot, Jason. Thanks for having me. It was really good talking to you. All right, cool. All right, guys, we'll see you next time.